0: We should
1: probably stop talking all this shit about Art and he right here. Oh, <laughs> oh Art didn't it? So, oh, oh. I was just waiting for that one. <laughs> oh, we booted him.
2: Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode. I'm your host and moderator, Anthony Rivera Strain. And today I am joined by Art Black. Hello, hello. Afro de Riviere. Good to be here. And Mateo de Gaulle. Hey. And this is Crowdsource Politics. On today's episode, we will be discussing politics as aestheticism, or aestheticism as politics. What it means, why we're talking about it today, and if it's uh, equivalent of politics as sports. Real piece of
3: art is a window into the transcendent. That's what it is. And you need that in your life because you're finite and limited.
0: The art history I study today is not the same I studied 10 years ago. My classroom and my writing are changing in response to shifting political climates and debates. Leaders and fighters for freedom and liberty and the American dream, the best is yet to come.
2: Without further ado, let's go ahead and start the show. So. Afra, I know you've been doing a ton of research on this topic, like we all have, but you have been looking forward to it as well. Uh, We've had to cancel a couple of times. So what is your take on this subject?
0: (laughs) Well, I know you just brought me on here to talk about Walter Benjamin. Is that what happened? No, I'm kidding. Found Um, us
3: out. What? (laughs) You found us out.
0: Yeah, yeah, I know. I know. This was your master plan all along. Well, I mean, uh, politics as aesthetics or the aestheticization of politics you know, it's this sort of really old concept, you know, going back 100 years or so, where people were trying to make sense of the way fascist and communist governments kind of appropriated the aesthetic sense, and also appropriated art, of course. So, you know, this is like one of those concepts that got somehow got lost in the Cold War, along with a lot of other things, uh, like the fear of, domestic totalitarianism and authoritarianism. And so what we're seeing now, I think many of you will agree, our listeners will agree, is this turn toward politics as kind of fronting, um, wearing the T-shirt, wearing the MAGA hat, um, or the, you know, feminist as fuck, like T-shirt or something like that, bumper (laughs) stickers, you know, um, that is it's a clearly offering people something that they want that you can kind of see it as as a way of um, making identity manifest uh, through politics or through p- political signaling. Um, I think that that's really you know important. But also to think about what that does to the political climate um, is what, what's actually more interesting to me. So um, I'll let somebody else go.
2: So so would you would you would say that it this kind of includes uh like you said bumper stickers, but does it include like things like the che, La, che Guevara shirt that you can get at like Hot Topic, and you know, sh- show the man who you're, well, show the man what's for while you shop at Hot Topic and eat mall food, um, mm-hmm. but also things like I don't know, music and and that sort of thing.
0: Yeah, I mean for sure the Hot Topic T-shirt of Che Guevara. Um, it's I mean it's kind of like the Hot Topic T-shirt of the Ramones. Most of the people who are wearing it have <laughs> <laughs> very little. Right. Understanding of where it comes from, it just kind of looks cool. But then, you know, there is there is a reflexivity with with things like that, where you know, it, it, you wear something countercultural um, or that's supposed to shock the man, and then there there's a sort of effect of actually making a lot of those ideas more mainstream. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I do I do think that the more Che Guevara garb you you see on the street is indicative of, you know, the amount of people who are going to be therefore um, amenable to things like Occupy Wall Street or, you know, the Bernie Sanders campaign. Possibly.
2: Gotcha. Matteo. I know this is a topic that also interests you, but maybe from a different angle. What are your thoughts about it?
1: Uh, I think it's something that's always been around. It's just how people express themselves. It's not even strictly politics. Basically, I mean, religion is an easy one to grab. Uh, what people say, mm-hmm. I forget the sociologist who came up with it, but the front stage and the backstage self. Basically, the aesthetic politics that we all put out would be the front stage self. And it's not necessarily what we believe but it has more to do with like where we're trying to fit in who we want to be accepted by what our goals are at least as far as Mm. uh social and even even uh vocational
2: so so would you say that it's uh virtue signaling is definitely a part of this uh, to a degree or is it just all it is
1: well it would be a part of it it's not it's not just that but it's it's really almost everything. Like like most people when they communicate, it's just phatic communication. I think before we started recording, art was talking about uh the way someone like responds to like a how are you thing, you know, or how's it going? And you know, someone's yeah. like it's going. The how's it going thing is just more phatic, you know, no one's actually like, Where are you going right now? It's just, you know, hey, what's up? So I think a lot of that comes out in politics in its own way. And that's really just aesthetics.
2: Okay. So what how how would you say the, like something like the uh the black and old Fred Perry shirt of the Proud Boys fits into this. And anybody can take this question.
1: I mean it's a signal. It's like a name tag almost or uh like okay, a jersey. Name tag. I like or I like that. Jersey.
2: It's a it's a name tag. Sports jersey is also an important thing to note, Mateo. So I appreciate that. Uh Art, what what's your thoughts about it?
3: So it's an interesting thing uh, in that uh you know we like to use the word tribalism. We throw that around a lot, but uh, tribes do have their own symbols, their own totems, their own ways to identify and distinguish themselves from other people. And in some cases, when you don't necessarily have one, you'll try to create it out of nothing. You know, for instance, the ubiquitous uh, MAGA hat now wasn't really even a thing until they just decided that they needed a brand. So they went with a you know mm-hmm. their strong red state color, and then you know gave it kind of a logo, but it became its own aesthetic. So in some cases, you create something new, or you get you know a lot of people uh, online who. You know, as things like socialism or anti-capitalism become more more common, uh, especially among you know younger demographics that don't necessarily have uh, any structure to it, you'll see it's very common. For instance, on like you know kind of like left-leaning Twitter, for people to put little hammer and sickle logos uh, Mm -hmm. or kind of work that you know that image uh, in. And it's funny because it doesn't have the same kind of connotation, you know, like that. If you go back, you know, thirty years, even twenty or ten years. There's a lot of baggage to a hammer and sickle, you know, the,
2: mm-hmm. pe- especially it, in the United States.
3: Well, especially in the United States, but you know, arguably, okay, uh, more you so know, outside. Yeah, I, I you was talk to say, someone from me, the
1: old country, and they'll hate you if you downplay how bad it was. Right, Perfect exactly. Point.
3: Like Eastern, you know, Eastern Europe or even Western Europe, you know, you'd probably get a lot more of an attachment or uh, you know negative reaction or, or or what have you. But it's funny because now it's very almost it's a way to kind of virtue signal without knowing what. The history of it is, and it's just—it's interesting to see people kind of reuse old symbols and try and put them back into use. And you know, to a certain extent, you know, not to compare them, but you could see people on the right, you know, who are you like will throw around swastikas, and Mm -hmm. it'll be as a way to kind of invoke fear and power without necessarily knowing the full context of it. But uh, it's—it's interesting that people realize that even very inert things like symbols can have a lot of charge to them. And, you know, then you can get into things like, you know, team colors, team jerseys, like you guys were talking about. But it, but it's interesting that people will, you know, create it out of need and they'll either generate something new or they'll repurpose something old.
0: I just I wanted to piggyback on that a little bit, because I think, you know, what art is getting at is that uh, a lot of these symbols become abstracted from their political the political goals that kind of imbued them with meaning to begin with, and so you'll have the Nazi flag or the or the the hammer and sickle um, that some people are going to interpret di- differently, of course, across <clears throat> across the Atlantic Ocean. And what I think is important about that, and what this is, is like sort of the effect of this, the effect of this abstraction from the actual political goals, um, is that. Is the aestheticization of politics, and and I and I I'll, I'll note also that Benjamin makes a distinction between the uh, politicization of aesthetics and the aestheticization of politics. We could get into that if you want, but it's pretty um, heady. And, and what happens there is that the, in the aestheticization of politics, you the returns that you get for participating in that are not in political goals. They are they're a sort of payment in kind. What you're getting in a, is an aesthetic experience. I, I don't know if I'm explaining this correctly, but as far as, you know, participating in things that are largely aesthetic and largely abstracted from political goals the value of that is going to be aesthetic. It's not getting anything. So when you talk to like proud, if you talk to, I've never talked to a proud boy, but you know, real hardcore sort of MAGA supporters, what are you getting from that participation in the symbolism, uh, the red hats, the language, the, the tribe, what you're getting is just that tribe. You're getting the satisfaction mm. of, you know, you could call it virtue signaling or signaling affiliation with that tribe, but you're ultimately not getting anything political from it. And it occupies people. It keeps them focused. Um, it keeps them tribalized, but it doesn't actually produce anything politically. It's, it's actually kind of, I would think, counterproductive to achieving political goals.
2: And that's a great point, Afra. Thank you so much for for doing that. But would you say that it's actually counterproductive if the point of the aestheticization of politics is to create some sort of unity and inculcate people into a particular political idea and culture through symbology, uh, wouldn't it kind of cement those people's ideas around this, this symbolism and make them more entrenched into those ideas and less likely to, uh, view ideas from the other side.
0: Oh, of course it would. And that's, that was my point about it, it, you know, further tribalizing people Mm or keeping them, you know, within their tribe. But ultimately, you know, if, if you're going in for aesthetics, what you're going to get out of that is more aesthetics and what it's not, it's not a recipe for activism. Put on a Che Guevara shirt. That's a a signal. And yes, does that mean that you're probably going to vote as left as you possibly can? Maybe, right. Depends on what you see in that symbol, but you're getting, but it's not the kind of it. Aestheticization is, is actually like, I would argue like neutralizes activism. It, Keeps you feeling satisfied by the aesthetic part of that, the signaling that you're a part of it, the seeing the other people who are doing it, and vir- you know virtue signaling or tribal gotcha. signaling. But it it's not a it's not a recipe for activism. It's sort of a recipe for complacence, and that's that is why I mean I I love Benjamin, and so you know some people disagree with him, but that is why it's been used by authoritarians for such a long time because it it creates a focus. On that aesthetic that is, you know, at the very least a distraction from Mm. paying attention to what's going on and, and from achieving anything. And you don't really actually, just as you get people to vote for you or to stay within that tribe or to vote red all the time, doesn't mean that you therefore have a mandate to actually deliver anything for them because what you're delivering is the aesthetic experience.
2: they create a spectacle for the masses and they'll follow Mm -hmm. you around if there's enough of them buying into your ideas so you don't have to do much else
0: yep that's my that's my position anyway
2: okay uh thank you for clarifying that um art did you have anything you wanted to add
3: not on that i mean i think that pretty well you know sums it up i mean if you think about you know how um you know quote unquote freedom focused you know uh, a lot of people in america are or claim to be you still find them gravitating towards uh you know these kind of heavy symbols that basically dictate what you're supposed to believe, you know, things within that box that if you're pro-freedom, then you're very obedient to, you know, this kind of framing and the, you know, kind of the flag aesthetic. And, uh, you know, this is a lot of things that, it's it just, I always find it funny that no matter how an independent free thinker you are, you know, almost it's like the harder they beat that drum, you know, the more they're into certain aesthetics and certain, uh, you know, frames that other people built that they become followers for.
1: You'd be non-conforming too if you were just like me. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> right.
3: Right. And, I mean, and this is true of like, you know, any like rebel punk rocker who's like all mysteriously get the same leather jacket and haircut, you know, and, uh, you know, th- even, even if you look at like tattoos and things, you know, within certain uh, subsets, I'm not even talking about gang tattoos. I just mean like if you're getting like some, like, you know, rockabilly, you know, like the swallow, you ta- know, I mean, there's all kinds of stuff where it's just, you know, uh, certain themes that are recycled among the, people who are, like, you know, counterculture and rebellious.
0: Yeah, and then you're also probably going to like motorcycles, and you're also probably going to like, you know, X, Y, Z. But, you know, what I'm wondering is that, is there a difference between the the punk aesthetic and the motorcycle aesthetic and the aestheticization of politics in terms of, like, what the outcome is? Does it have a, a different kind of social... Uh, effect or effect on social cohesion or disjunction or anything like that, because when we start to talk about sports teams and we start to talk about tattoos and rockabilly and things like that, it kind of feels like it's all blending together. But this is, you know, this is not just identity. This is like this is politics too. This is you mm-hmm. know life and death for some people. So the differences are more interesting than the similarities um, with other kinds of identity signaling that you see.
2: May the political tribe with the best propaganda win, right?
0: Yeah. And, you know, we we see a a real, there's a, a, I think, a significant for me, because I'm somebody who, who deals in culture and deals in symbolism and texts and things like that. You know, we can't really have this conversation without bringing up the fact that over the last 30 or 40 years or so, Uh, the right has co-opted most of the traditional, if not all of the traditional symbols of America. Right. And they've been, and in some cases, they've just taken it and owned it, like with the flag. And in some cases, they've almost been handed it, like with things like the um, Pledge of Allegiance, objections to that, which are completely understandable from the left, objections to how we're, you know, how people are expected to behave when the national anthem is played. They have managed to own traditional symbols of nonpartisan patriotism. And it's part of the same thing. It's the politicization of uh, traditional nonpartisan aesthetic symbols that are, have now become partisans. So I'm like curious what you, what you, I know we've talked about this a little bit on other podcasts, but I think it mm-hmm. needs to come up here too.
2: Does anybody want to take a swing at that?
1: Yeah, I guess so. Like, um, kind of like on the flip side of that, like when people say like facts have like a liberal bias, they're almost like bringing academia into it instead of like, uh, like I'm trying, I'm trying to think of something that's like nonpartisan, like the American flag, almost.
0: Yeah. Like they're almost like yeah. bringing
1: that into their orbit. It's kind of like the same Academia, thing.
0: Definitely.
2: No, I definitely see that. I, I think the the politicalization of like the American flag, we could trace it back forever, right? You know, definitely Cold War. Definitely anytime there's been a war or anything like that, you could trace it back. But as far as the modern terms, I think we have to say that that happened right after 9 11, when we started playing national anthem more at sports games, having the military roll out the flags and the jets mm-hmm. and everything else like that, where people are like, "Well, if you don't like America, you can get out." And you know, freedom fries and all this other stuff where we kind of saw a complete, I don't I don't want to say co-opting, but like some some retreatment from that from the left because you know we just got into a war people didn't like people mm-hmm. other than other people liked it and so if you want you showed the flag and respect to america and shining on the hill city on the hill and everything like that you're like well i don't feel like it's that way anymore so yeah. am i wrong on this
0: no people go they go to these sports because, you know, you don't really, if you're watching on TV, you don't see all of that. If you're actually at a stadium, you're going to see, you know, people are, they're drinking, they're excited, they're all hopped up on adre- adrenaline or testosterone or whatever it is. They're already feeling super tribal. And then there's, you know, from just having the national anthem to this entire, like, hour-long thing that goes on before a game. Maybe there are people getting awards for service. Maybe you've got the cops there standing up to get cheered. You've got all of this symbol of power, law and order, you know, mixed in with what the thing that people love, sports, and all of these traditional symbols that are now more and more, like if you see an American flag flying off the back of a pickup truck, you can kind of figure out who that dude votes for. Like you can right. see no. Um, and that's and and I'm not blaming anybody for that, but if 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 the aestheticization of politics has created a situation where traditional aesthetic symbols um that make us feel things in the middle of a sports game or our kids' graduation or something like that are now owned by one party or another, this concept that comes out of the you know the critical investigation of authoritarianism it's 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 an important thing it's an important thing to pay attention to and i'm not saying like the left should take it back i don't know what to make of this but certainly you're not wrong because in that environment it's very charged from a number of different places and yeah people are people are going to react to this these symbols and and these this music and everything differently in that context and they did they have been for like what's well, been like 20 years or so since they started it
3: yeah well you think back like um oh, well, I should not say you should think and remember back but uh, after the civil <laughs> war um you know especially as we're getting closer towards the the 20th century there was a kind of a common understanding in America that the nation was still very divided you know in the post civil war era and there was a lot of you know kind of beginning movements towards unity. And the first draft of the uh, Pledge of Allegiance was written, I want to say, in like the 1890s or so. And yeah. then, you know, that sort of sentiment, um, you know, and th- things moved slower back then, but, uh, you know, leading up to World War I, you know, you got this first real sense of, you know, America as having this identity of not being, you know, kind of a, more or less like a second-tier nation, but stepped up into that role. We got a lot more of that, the trappings of that, that, you know, we kind of borrowed from Europe and it fleshed itself out in a way that did create, if not unity, then the illusion of it for a long time. And then especially between like, you know, World War I and then you know, World War II, especially kind of turbocharged it from there. We did have a good, you know, couple of decades in the mid 20th century where it was a very bipartisan thing. I mean, that sense of unity and national purpose and all that, Uh, You know, we didn't quite go down the darker elements of that, you know, in most cases, uh, like parts of Europe did. But, you know, we still borrowed quite a bit of it and wound up with something that uh, now we feel the absence of it. Like we can feel that sense of national unity kind of disintegrating. And the fact that like one side can kind of use the flag more than the other. It seems odd to us, but it would have been a lot more odd, you know, 50 or 70 years ago where it was just, you know, both sides would just use... The national symbols and uh, all those trappings of of kind of power and culture, bipartisanly, like it was just, you know, it it wouldn't have been seen as a, a wedge issue. It would have been seen as you know just a just something that everyone invokes because everyone was for it. So and like we were saying earlier, when you have a need for certain symbols, you can always either create a new one or repurpose an old one. So it I think it speaks to the fact that it is something you can divide. That just shows that we're divided. and that's the reason why you will get these kind of tribal divisions is that you know that it ultimately will represent what is there and what people kind of gravitate towards. And if people aren't really resonating with it and it's not really you know, speaking to them, then they're not going to do it. So and I think that that's kind of why you know we see that division now
0: Well, I agree. um I, I agree with what what you just said. And I think, you know, to go back even farther, the importance of things like flags is really relatively new for Anglo-American society. And and I think a lot of people forget that, the flags and the anthems and things like that. You're talking about a late 19th, early 20th century phenomenon. And I think a lot of it, like you said, was deliberate to try to create some deliberate sense of unity while also saying where, you know, those, those disloyal ones, we need to um, remind them of their, uh, of their disloyalty through things like pledges. And it's, it's part of it is like losing the kind of physical body of the king or the monarch, which is Mm -hmm. where a lot of this um this the aesthetics were invested the aesthetics of the monarch of the coronations of the different you know kingly duties uh of the castles that were built or the palaces that were built that really said to people this is england this is france this is poland you know whatever or russia and you know losing that and not having that kind of unifying personal figure uh, for the U.S. was a problem that needed to be solved. And it was really largely solved through aesthetics, um, through the sort of, I don't want to say fetish, fetishization, but I mean, that's a word of the constitution. <laughs>
2: um, you know, the, don't kink shame me, Afro. The,
0: the physical document of the constitution, it's stuff like how many people have You know, how many people in England do you think have a copy of the Magna Carta that like looks like somebody burnt the edges with a lighter and, you know, but we have that. We have that for the Constitution. We have that for the old timey flag and for the for the new flag. So, you know, the U.S. is is particularly, I think, vulnerable to manipulation through the aesthetics, through the symbology you know, of America for people to be able to, you know, or a party to be able to pick that up and use it because it is in, in that sense, sort of all that we have that functions as this unifying mechanism.
2: Would anybody on the, the cast say that the aesthetization of politics kind of serves a similar purpose to what old school rituals and courtly courtesies would, would serve?
0: Mm-hmm. I mean the catholic catholic liturgy is is like completely uh it, it's all aesthetics. It's it's every sense. It's a your know, vision uh sight, you know, sight, smell, um taste, uh you know, the hearing, everything is involved in that and you know, this is something that people have since you know, the protestant reformation tried to recreate in other ways or mm-hmm. kind of take it and run with it, right? We don't have Catholicism anymore. Let's find something else. And and if you think about like the aesthetics of a football game, particularly the hour or so before they actually call, or you know, or a baseball game before they throw out the first pitch, because I don't know fucking anything about football. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it is that ceremony. It is that ceremony. It's just the smells are different and the sights are different and what people are doing around you is a little bit different. But we have to be, I think, aware of, of how important that is to human experience so that we know when somebody's kind of fucking around.
2: That is a, a, a great point that we Afro that we need to be aware of the the importance of this to human experience, because that brings up another point that might, that might people might not know with things like bowling alone and, and that sort of stuff where we've had a disillusion of not disillusion. Um, that's the word I'm looking for dismember, not dismemberment, but similar I don't know, dissolving? Destruction, dissolve, yeah, dissolving of, of civic organizations, dissolving of civic organizations, and and how maybe politics is replacing that, and therefore the aestheticism of politics is making things worse.
3: Well, the problem Lots. is with with the cancel culture being so prevalent, you can't even <laughs> really go bowling with other people. You say something, you get canceled, so it's just not safe. Yeah, yeah
0: it's not safe to bowl. You have to. It's bowl. all right as
2: long as we don't get canceled, we're all good. But. <laughs> But, but no, in all seriousness, though, no. like, is it serving that purpose is, is the virtue signaling, the symbology, the aestheticism serving a similar purpose to what maybe rituals served or civic organizations serve to kind of like take replace that? I know that Mateo has said in the past people are looking for a a peg or a, a thing to fill that God shaped hole in their in their heart and they're doing it with politics. So I, I think all this stuff kind of like goes together here. And, and I think it's something that we should explore.
1: Yeah. It replaces everything. It's community. It's culture. It's often a lot of the time song, like a lot of the music people listen to correlates really? with their politics. Almost. It's kind of weird. Oh, um, that's a
2: great thing though. Like there's entire Bernie channels of like folk music dedicated on like YouTube dedicated to Bernie yeah, people Sanders People get weird with thing.
1: politics. And it becomes an aesthetic of their its own. Like they're not even really talking about policy. It's more just mm-hmm. like, I really like to have Bernie's face on my shirt. It it really mm-hmm. lets the people walking past me know who I am. It's more just an outward like expression.
2: And and to be clear to everybody listening up to this point, we're not talking crap about anybody here. We're just talking about the phenomenon.
1: <laughs> oh, except Bernie.
0: <laughs> we're, trying to, we're trying to talk crap equally across the spectrum so everybody hate you gonna, all <laughs> everybody's gonna get some crap today
3: yeah uh, <laughs> no but to that point you know like you were saying uh, there's a god-shaped vacuum at the heart of every man which cannot be filled which is Blaise pascal and you know the idea with that is that you know in the absence of uh you know you know that sense of unity like humans always try to create it like we try to create it with families or with culture or with you know tribes societies nations all that like there's a certain degree of that where you just need a certain amount to you know stand in for you know for whatever that vacuum is so in the absence of it like what you're talking about how you know you have this sense now that you know there's american uh, institutions that are kind of decaying and our you know kind of our older practices are are disintegrating but that just means that we feel the need to create new ones, and we seek them out, and we will create them. And that's just a natural rise and fall of things, be it you know nations or cultures or or what have you. They're all just forms that serve a purpose. And if the form becomes outdated or it stops fulfilling the role that it needs to, it'll decay and it'll be replaced by something else. So mm-hmm. some of them are more durable than others, uh, and then some of them are a little more transient. They're they're just fads. Uh, but people will kind of latch onto things and try them out. And the enduring ones, you know, will endure and the other ones won't. And this is, um, I think, just based off of that, that fundamental requirement that, you know, humans just have these needs. And we either need to latch onto something that already exists or create something new and uh, kind of give it its own, you know, logo and team colors. Yeah. Yep.
0: That's something point. that people people need. And and i i don't want to be the person who blames the internet but i'm going to blame the internet too i mean no, you the internet like, can be blamed for everything <laughs> yeah you see like, you know people's connect their the connections their communities are kind of scattered uh, you know across the globe now instead of being, you know, the uh, the civic institution that we had before, and so how do you recognize each other in the wild? Right? You rec- like I can be picked out because I wear a Ruth Bader Ginsburg mask. Like you know, yeah, you know what what side I'm on you, because you see you see what I what I'm wearing because I want to signal that also, and there's a desire I think to to have that. Come through not only online and not only in the ballot box, you know, but also to allow random strangers that you see in public to be able to identify you. Why do we want to be identified instead of wanting to blend in, as has been kind of what humans did for a long time? And it might have something to do with the scattering of our communities and our tribes um across time and space in a way that had did not exist 40 years ago. Did not really exist 20 years ago.
3: Yeah. And to be clear, for those of you listening at home, when she says a Ruth Bader Ginsburg mask, she means the full <laughs> rubber mask that covers her entire head. Yes, so, yes. It's it actually a cool. cosplay thing.
0: <laughs> that would send a totally different signal. <laughs> <laughs> it's Hollywood quality, it looks the like the ball thing. <laughs> right, she right. persisted,
3: guys. Right, yes. <laughs> She's back.
2: But- Oh, damn. I think one of the things that we should touch upon and we kind of we kind of touched upon it a little bit, though, is like how propaganda fits into this. While this was originally studied as kind of a ultra nationalistic uh, authoritarian fascist uh, concept, you know, because with Nazi Germany and um, fascist Italy, you had all these different symbols and aestheticism put into politics in order to create this kind of shared community brand sort of thing. Uh, But that didn't, it didn't stop there. Right. So we've been talking the last 20 minutes or 15 minutes or so about how we're all kind of tribal now, and we're all kind of doing this now. So how does propaganda fit into that? How does like, is it a top down phenomenon still, or is it a bottom up phenomenon?
1: These are things that we should talk about. I think it goes into the front stage self with propaganda because a lot of it is just there to be seen. It's not necessarily like how you're going to act. Take, for example, uh, you know, the cries of our institutions throughout the last four years, like, oh, my God, our institutions are going to crumble. I care so much about these processes. But then when the Kavanaugh hearing came around, it was just a total animal house. Like those people who are disrupting the place, they don't get free tickets like the Daily right. Show. They were invited in by senators, like the t- t- the leaders of this party. But then, when you see them on camera, it's a totally different, totally different uh, spiel. So the aesthetic of like calm, college educated, orderly, cultured people is just part of that. Like it's the front stage self, and that's where the aesthetics come into play.
2: I think there's there's this duality thing, right? Especially with with liberals and leftists, where you want to be the nice, uh, pragmatic sort of person. That's respectable. And at the same time, you want to hold people to account and you want to be the asshole and you want to yell at people. And so you have this like flip flop. Anytime there's like a power uh, differential between the two sides, between left and right, where, you know, you, you say that, Oh, you can't do that. That's like beyond the pale. And then the next moment you're like screeching.
1: <laughs> the right does it too. The right. has <laughs> Yeah. Everybody own, does it. Yeah. Their own culture war. It's almost always like they're under attack. It, it's, it like, it's an, a, what am I thinking of the word? It's uh, it's like a latent mm-hmm. effect from their uh, Christian background almost. Because let's face it, the right has heavier Christian yeah. Yeah. Uh, members. So like they're always ha- playing like the persecuted mm-hmm. card. Like like I just said, uh, Democrats will play like, the you know, I'm orderly. I'm so well-to-do and cultured. And then you got the right wingers. So like, oh, they're always trying to stop us and oppress us. And we're just like Jesus and the Christians back in the day. Yeah, it's, persecution. Moderate, yeah, it's, moderate, their front stage yeah. self is always like such a drama fest. It's insane.
0: They need that. They need that because it's, it, you know, for a lot of pe- not all Christians, not all Christians, uh, is built into their religion, right? You have to suffer for Christ. Now, there is nobody in the United States right now who's suffering for Christ. Not, I'm sorry, there's not a single fucking person. However, they need that, so they have to find it. And that's a totally different.
2: The whole bottle but, wax topic.
0: But to you know, to go to Anthony's question, like I, I think it that it's really important to think about and and from my perspective, it's also really important to think about like what does this do to art? Right. It, and and I have a little bit of experience with this. It's like, you know, the when when politics becomes about aesthetics, art tends to fight back. And a lot of art now, and a lot of artists, music, like we said, uh, they're they're infusing their art with some kind of, with, with politics, with something that signals their politics. So it's, again, this sort of reflexive thing that happens. And that also kind of rubs against the grain for some people who think that art should not be political. What you're seeing is like more and more, at least attention on the type of art that is political. Uh, you know, recently, like there was a statue of Mary. Wool. it wasn't a statue of Mary Wollstonecraft, but a statue in, um, in honor of Mary Wollstonecraft, which was just like a naked lady, like coming out. to say it. that was hot. <laughs> it was pretty good. So <laughs> I, um, I have all kinds of opinions about that. Most people hated it, but I, more complex. So, you know, it's, it, art then has to become more political or that you know artists feel the need to become more political the more that it, the more that politics usurps art you know, in in people's um, right. in people's daily lives. And that was kind of, you know, how the, the Soviets handled that. They were like, if you want to control the pop, there's a quote there, and I can't find it right now. You want to control the population, you need to control art. You need to control the books. And in Russia, this was particularly important because the, the, the Russian literature was like world renowned and incredibly important to anyone who was literate, even if you weren't literate. Uh, you say Dostoevsky or Gogol, and like you know, it, it meant a whole lot, and not because it was political. So it had to be kind of made political, and then there is a reaction, right? And then there's uh, uh, there there are books or there there's art that react to it. So this is like a kind of reactive situation where now, what is American art if 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 politics and aesthetics combine they fuse themselves, what, what is the response of the art world and what does it actually do to art? Because are people going to look at that and say, now art has become too political, or do we no longer need that because we have this political version of it? It's the same situation as what we were talking about with religion, mm-hmm. you know, you have to fill that need. But if politics, you know, if, if politics begins to fill that need for Jesus, right? And you're no longer paying paying attention to what you know things that Jesus actually said, like red letter Bible stuff. Uh, what you know, the same idea is is going on in in the art world or in the world of literature that you know people have. I have politics now. I have being a Democrat. I have being a Republican. I have being a, a socialist. And I and so art then has to react to that as well. And it's no longer fully free. It's in a it's in reactive mode.
2: And and then to, to piggyback off of that point, Afra, I think that, you know, in, enables further tribalization because if your uh, God-shaped hole is being filled with politics, then oh. your Satan is the other side. Mm-hmm. And so if you're constantly doing this moralizing of what people might disagree with you and are not on your political side, you're going to end up seeing them as evil. And that yeah. is very problematic. And I think one of the interesting things about this whole thing with the the art aesthetics and uh, art becoming more political is the fearless girl. We saw that uh at what it was, what year was it? Uh 2017, where the original artist of the charging bull was uh, immensely offended by Walsh the the firm putting out the fearless girl in this. and it completely changed the connotation of right. What Walsh, what the the Raging Bull was, and made it into this like evil masculine figure, where a strong girl is just standing there smirking and be like, haha you can't touch me," and it it flipped it on its head.
0: Yeah, and like you're saying, if if your God shaped hole is filled with politics, there is a consequence, and if your art shaped hole is with politics. You know what what is the consequence then, to any art that is that is nuanced or is that that is human focused, that is not political or at least not partisan, right? Um, do we distrust that? Is it does it become like the new CNN, the enemy of the people? it It puts it puts things into it completely recontextualizes, you know, art, of course to be well if you're not with us you're against us type of thing
1: i think art would have its own genres just like uh even politics itself so th- they'll still be like a marketplace i guess is what i'm trying to say like the options will be there the yeah Can like um, a little further into it yeah like we should if, um, probably
0: stop talking all this shit about art i mean he's right here
1: oh i was just waiting for that one. <laughs> Oh, we booted him
3: you guys reached all the way back to the fourth grade for that one. <laughs> oh come
0: on, that so you, was funny.
3: No, no, it was. It was uh, highbrow. So, <laughs> uh, uh, no,
1: was day, were say you that, making your point? No. Uh, yeah, it wasn't anything special. Okay, go ahead, Art.
3: I, I was just going to say that because uh, we were talking about the propaganda kind of aspect, and propaganda is just uh, the old Latin term for marketing. So, if you think about you know trying to create this you know certain image and framework for people to buy into you know we have competing brands out there you're oftentimes trying to sell the same or a similar product so you kind of have to create these artificial distinctions to build your own following and sometimes you'll have some kind of crossover and in more unified times for instance like the u.s flag or all that or even you know older symbols from history just might not mean anything Um, and nowadays like if you see somebody online that has like a you know like a figure of like some you know roman general or something in their uh, avatar you're like oh like this isn't just a you know Run stray r- you know well r- r- it's not just a stray reference like someone's actually trying to draw a distinction saying that this <laughs> aspect of things is mine and this is you know or of my team and uh you know it's not just an inert thing or neutral thing from history but in fact something that's very partisan and it's on my side of the line and you know you In order for you to share it you would need to agree with me on things and you know you're forcing things to have distinctions that don't necessarily need to have them and you know to take it in kind of another uh you know extreme if you think about the idea of like the racial aesthetics and all that like when you get down to the conceptual version of america it really shouldn't matter what anybody's race is and if we're taking in immigrants from different countries In theory, based off of what we claim to all universally agree in, it actually shouldn't matter as these people come in and uh, from wherever and become American. But in practice, there is actually a very deep concern that, you know, and sometimes it's stated and often it's not that if you get too many people from the wrong place uh, or wrong places or not from the right places, then you're going to wind up with uh, something that, you know, on paper is the same, but uh, for reasons that, you know, or uh, hard or maybe undesirable for people to get into, they just decide to uh, oppose it without maybe saying why. So it's just interesting that we have a lot of things that we create these divisions and sometimes it's, you know, very clearly said why and sometimes it's just implied, but, you know, there divisions come out of nowhere uh, that we take very, very seriously. And that's just part of branding and marketing or propaganda is that you're trying to create a framework that says, well, this stuff in this category is right or correct or better, and this stuff is not. And uh, it's just for a way to kind of, you know, gain allegiance to those different frameworks. Which people then leverage for power or profit.
2: So what do we do about it then? We have, we we all agree that we're having more aesthetization of p- politics. We all agree that there's tribalization is, is, a, is an issue. We we all agree that there is a an issue with the fracturing of America along these lines. Is there any way that we can use the asceticism politics to, like, bring things back together? Or is it too late because of the time period that we're in?
1: Yeah, you get meta. Just make everything <laughs> self-referential and, like, point out how cliche it really is are way. we talking about
2: meta meta modernism post meta modernism?
1: I don't remember what the exact I mean, term of I'm it is, just saying yeah. like you know operate outside of it basically uh I wish I had a better way to explain it meta worked for me <laughs> Meme wars? like we just kind we, of we, yeah we, actually we, a we lot take of it to nihilism. <laughs> yeah pretty much just just learn to not take certain people seriously like the person screaming in the street about how much they care about you know some Issue, probably they just probably don't care about it. Make fun of them, you know. You're not making fun of the issue, make fun of that person acting like an idiot. Okay, like just yeah, brush them off. Like uh, a a lot of this stuff is just it's almost like a culture war in a way.
2: Oh, for sure. But the reason I ask, and for those that that uh may not know from from our listeners, we at Crowdsource Politics Podcast have a, a, a political group where we're trying to. Uh, increase the, the, uh, unit, not unity, but de- decrease, you know, tribalization, increase politeness, uh, make, make political discourse, uh, better. And we produce this podcast as, as a way to try to kind of do that. And so like, if we are also doing an aestheticism, with our niceness, our, our respectability, and, and that sort of stuff while being as entertaining as possible. Uh, is that the way forward? Or is it going to require more and, and that sort of thing?
0: Well, I, you know, I'm just going to say this, I think, when you have a situation where the, a nation is so divided to the point where they think they can't even sit down at the same table together, But at the same time, when you break down certain issues, even the most divisive and, like, violently angry issues, things like abortion or health care or something like that, and you see 70% of the country wants this. 70% of the country supports Black Lives Matter or support, you know, something like that. Or 70% of the country supports Roe v. Wade. But then... When you look at their political divide and whether they feel that they can talk to someone on the other side of the aisle without wanting to punch them, you get a very, very different picture. So one of the things that you want to do, I think, as a political group or as a podcast is to focus on the nuances of these issues. What you want to do as an artist or as a critic or an interpreter of art and you know a teacher mode or something like that is to focus on nuance, right? And there's there's a significant difference between propaganda and political art or politic political speech. And that difference is that propaganda shuts down discussion. It says this is that you know freedom is slavery or if you if you're riding alone you're riding with hitler that's propaganda but there's a lot of political speech there's a lot of political art art activism that is a lot more nuanced than that that ask, that that requires that you ask questions and that you focus on sort of discrete content areas um in order to understand it that's where you want to go with people. And it's hack at this point, you know, it's kind of cliche that you you talk about issues. This is something that anybody who's on the ground working for political campaigns knows that you don't approach people as a party, you approach them as an issue. What would you like to see done about X? And when you do that, there's actually a lot more unity. And if if not unity, there's there's a kind of like quorum, you know, um, Hmm. of people. But what is the aestheticization of politics does, and this is the last thing I'm going to say, is allows for all of that nuance and for all of those areas of unification or agreement to be erased through a symbol or a few choice words in a speech. And that's, I think, why it's really dangerous.
3: When you you know think about uh, aestheticism or a propaganda or marketing or anything, it's all prescriptive in that it frames what the right answer is before you have to think about it. And like even what you were saying before about, you know, like, you know, what do we do about this? How do we fix it? I mean, that presupposes that, you know, our natural evolution is a bad thing and that us growing apart is bad. Now, it may be or may not be, but when you're framing is that we have a flag with 50 stars, and that means that when things are right in the world, We have 50 states and we are unified. And that may or may not be true, but the aesthetics of it is an assumption. And it's something that it kind of lets people operate within a certain paradigm and they understand, you know, basically what right looks like and all that. And if you think about like our foreign policy, you know, 50, 60 years ago, where we would argue about domestic politics, but in foreign policy, Democrats and Republicans were unified. You know, they used to say politics stops at the water's edge and whatever happens overseas. Is this commonly understood that our framing is that we are united on this we're not necessarily united at home, but we, we even still that that still fit into our overall you know understanding of the, how the democracy is supposed to operate. So I guess where I'm going with this is that when you have division like this, it's because you have competing visions for what the prescriptive solution to our problems is, and it's to the point where they're divergent enough that you actually, there isn't really a lot of middle ground. You know, there's not really a lot of middle ground on abortion. You know, there really isn't. I mean, if you aren't willing to have some kind of truce on it, and you want to fight it out, ultimately, you just have to fight it out. One side's going to win, one side's going to lose. And you know, for a lot of our issues, and like economic ones, even now, we're talking about trying to do these uh, relief checks, there's really not a lot of middle ground, either you, know, you believe in helping people or you don't, or you feel that it's not worth the risk to the, uh, you know, the, the debt to you know, add more to it. So you'd rather people suffer now than suffer later. However you wanna look at it, you, know, you just have these uh, divergent worldviews that are framed by these opposing teams with their marketing and their propaganda and their uh, just very uh, predefined sets of correct solutions. And then we just kind of have that, you know, kind of fashion framework around it, where, you know, like you said, you've got the, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg mask or the red hat, and you just kind of funnel into one of these uh, kind of bifurcated, you know, groups. And you just, it's hard to have any kind of real compromise when the groups are very invested in their vision and they're very deep into their own, you know, kind of their symbols and their totems, but also they're very practical and very solid uh, policy positions.
2: No, that's a great point, Art. I I, uh, I greatly appreciate you making that. Actually, really quick, I just want to add in one one
3: other thing because just a thought occurs. So, uh, in Chinese, the term for propaganda doesn't actually carry a negative connotation, which sounds funny, but uh, the word is chuan uh, and it basically means like dissemination or uh, circulation, like almost you're just putting out what people need to know. And it's funny because in English, you say the word propaganda. And it's assumed that it's deceitful or somehow misleading or or whatever. Whereas the for the when the Chinese use it, the implication is just that you were just telling people kind of like what they need to know for their own benefit. And while obviously you know we're a little bit more wary to that sort of talk, but in a lot of times for them they more or less believe it and they think, well, you know, we need a central authority that's going to kind of you know steer the ship and you know do good things for the people and they want to kind of have that framework provided. So
0: it's just fundamentally very honest, you know, <laughs> because well, <laughs> people do want that.
3: Yeah. We're a little more, more sophisticated or uh, cognizant of how that can be manipulated. And, you know, mm-hmm. to an extent they are too, but I think they're a little bit more trusting in the, the overall idea that, you know, you, like they see government more like weather. where like, sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad, but overall mm-hmm. they need it. And it, you know, it, ideally it it should be doing this for us. Like that's, You know, they do want a government that's going to provide that level of guidance where people kind of know how to, how to organize. Hmm. Anyway, that's a bit of a tangent. I want to say that before I forgot. And then we went on to the next point.
2: With, with all this said, with propaganda, stigmatization, of politics and marketing and everything, can, can we use these tools that we've discussed kind of roundabout ways in order to bring us back together as a country? And if not, why?
0: No, I don't think so. I think this is ultimately a pernicious thing. Um, trying to trying to fill these various human needs um, with politics is, yeah, no, I think I think the the right response is to is to fight against it and to recognize that there are there are needs that we have, there are impulses and reflexes that if you start to substitute something like politics, um, you're just, you're you're turning people, I don't know, I, I think into like automatons. You need to return to the idea that things are complicated and nuanced, and that there are various ways of expressing, you know, the complicated nuances of human life. Um, if we, I, I, I think that trying to use these tools is they're only really applicable to to certain things, and if you just like you know scientism or or anything like that, you you're mm. going to try to substitute um, one one way of thinking to I don't know I can't I can't explain it, but ultimately I think it's pernicious. If you give me a couple of days, I might be able to make a face. <laughs> <subscribe.
1: laughs> Mateo, what about you? Um, yeah, basically like what I was getting back to before, like. I mean, you're. I, I'm basically agreeing with Afro right now. Like, you're not going to be able to do it, but the only way to really deal with it is, I guess, you could look at it as fighting back. Like what I said earlier, yeah. getting meta about it, basically like what meta humor is to, like the old sitcom. You know, just treat it as a trope, and eventually, hope people will see it for the cliche it is. If not, then you know that's just the, like what Art was saying before. The way society's going to evolve, it's not much you could do.
0: Gotcha. And it's like a, it's a sort I think the word I was thinking about is like it's, it's a, an epistemological problem, you know, that there there are many ways of knowing, and that there are many ways of of, of being and, and existing. And if you're going to reduce everything to a political identity and a political aesthetic and a political worldview, you're going to end up with situations where we can't actually solve any problems. Because it's
3: too, or at least not by way of broader consensus. Uh-huh. I mean, there'll be much narrow. There'll be much narrower victories where we just grapple with each other until somebody gets enough of an o- upper hand to force some kind of progress or solution through, and and that's it. And that's just how we do business, to the extent that that system you know lasts or works for us. I mean, at some point, if we lack enough consensus to do anything, you know, systems like that do break down. But our system is kind of interesting in that it does allow a lot of pressure to build up. And in most cases, you know, even though our wheels turn kind of slowly, we do have the benefit of, uh, you know, an engineering structure that seems to have, uh, you know, dealt us uh, pretty good results over the last couple of centuries. So it's obviously not ideal, but it does seem to be pretty durable. So when you, you know, like we were talking earlier about how some aesthetics are kind of fads is kind of come and go. You know, some things, uh, you know, actually uh, are, are built to last and, and, you know, last quite a long time. So I think that, you know, we're going to see now that the internet is changing things and how we interact with each other and how fast even political opinion, you know, evolves. Like you think about, you know, in decades or, or times past, how long it really took for consensus to evolve and for ideas to filter through society. And we had a government that was more or less, you know, attuned to that pace. And nowadays. It's hard to know if our government will wind up being flexible enough, you know, even though it is engineered to kind of contain a lot of unhappiness and and you know raw emotion and discontent, but also eventually have release valves for it, where we do eventually arrive at the right conclusion and we come to some change and kind of keep moving. But gosh, you look at public opinion and how fast things change these days and how deep the divisions can run. And it does put to question if the just the base structure that we're operating under, Uh, can keep up with the accelerated way that we live now
2: yeah it's a very important point to make like you said art that we have consensus building is it's not instantaneous but the amount of information out in the uh, in the zeitgeist there's way more velocity to it now than there's ever been at any point in human history and our systems as you said are designed for a slower time and maybe some of these systems need to be remade. Well, with that, everybody, I am sad to say that we are out of time. We know that you liked what you heard because you stayed it was the end. So go ahead and hit that like button for the algorithms. Share us with your friends. And as always, keep your head up through the political storm.